is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. Chances are you may already know my guest this week. It's celebrated chef and TV personality, Brian Malarkey, star of shows like Top Chef and The Taste, owner of multiple successful restaurants, including the nationally acclaimed San Diego establishments, Herb and Wood and Anime, and founder of Chef's Life, a range of delicious oils that will change the way you cook. After attending culinary school and finding the entire experience too rigid and precise for his creative tendencies, Brian sees the opportunity to travel Europe with his best friend, interrailing from Paris all the way down to Marrakesh. After getting robbed and beaten up on the first night, the two slowly earn their travel stripes, living frugally, trading tips with other travelers, and cooking delicious meals for entire hostels of people. In this episode, we discuss why traveling on a really tight budget is a great way to get to know a place and its people, how Europe taught him that simplicity is often the key to good cooking, and why so many chefs have larger-than-life personalities. So normally, I like to start by asking, where did your love of travel originate? You know, I grew up in a small town in Oregon, so everything was an adventure from going to the big city of Portland, Oregon, to the Oregon coast. And when you kind of come from a sheltered environment, uh, everything's quite a big adventure. And I really love to learn about other cultures and other places and enjoy other weather. And I just think it's just kind of people either love to travel or they don't. And I certainly love to travel. Were you a hiking family when you were growing up? When you're surrounded in an environment like this, we have the Deschutes River, we have these amazing mountain ranges, and we have all of these things where people move from everywhere right now to go hiking and biking and fly fishing, all those things. And when you have those natural resources right next to you, you don't take advantage of them as much as you possibly should. I mean, we had motorcycles and we, we did hunting and those sorts of things, but we were not just really enjoying the nature. We love to water ski on the lakes and we love to snow ski. But I mean, I have this, I love to fish now and I have this world-class trout fishing river, like a mile from my house. And I've never been fly fishing on it before in my life, you know, (laughs) but any chance to go fishing in San Diego, I go all the time with the same thing, similar. My children live in San Diego. We have a boat and they're sailing and all those things. That's the last thing they ever want to do. They're like, I don't want to do that. But thankfully they did just pick up uh, surfing quite enthusiastic about surfing right now because that was the greatest COVID sport there was. Oh yeah. Just getting out on the water away from everybody else. Perfect. (laughs) And did you have any idea when you were a kid about what you wanted to be when you were older? You know, I grew up on this ranch here and I always kind of thought I was going to just be like a horse trainer, a rancher. I was keeping it pretty pretty mellow. But then when I started traveling and I moved around and bounced around, I wasn't a very good college student, but I went to University of Portland. Then I went to Santa Barbara City College. And then I bounced around like Los Angeles and Minneapolis. And I started cooking. And once I started doing that, I knew I had far too much energy to ever return to the quiet, peaceful ranch life. And, you know, like I've been up for four days and there's, there's, very little nightlife. There's very little of that. My, my life revolves around nightlife. You know, I mean, I run restaurants. I'm, I'm where people go to party, entertain and celebrate life. And I'm like, I could never survive up here because, you know, most people's day starts early in the morning and mine does too, but mine goes, mine really picks up at about seven o'clock at night, you know, when the restaurant's full and the food's flying out and the drinks and people are that. And up here in Bend, Oregon, people are going to bed at seven o'clock at night. I mean, it's it's shut down. I'm like, ah. (laughs) Was there anyone in your family who loved to cook? Didn't your grandma know James Beard? Is that true? James Beard had a summer house uh, right next to uh, her house. Uh, I never cooked with James Beard. I never knew James Beard. I did have the opportunity to meet Julia Childs in Los Angeles several times. She used to come cook with us uh, in Michelle Richard, this famous French chef's kitchen she would come hang out with us and it was surreal but yes uh james beard had a summer house in gearhart oregon and he would cook with my grandmother all the time and entertain so oh my god she She must have eaten well 
she was, it was fun. We had blackberries and blueberries and we'd go gather them and she'd make pies for us and jams. And it was, it was a really fun thing. And you'd go, you'd go uh, clam digging on the beach and there was Dungeness crab and oh, it was just so much fun. I love that. Living off the land. You did go to study at culinary school, right? Yes. What was that experience like? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> culinary school, and there's not very many of them left anymore. Um, you know, more people are just learning on the job and the trade like they did in the olden days. And that's much better because culinary school is a huge financial commitment. And our industry does not pay well at the beginning, you know, and sometimes never. And it was always hard to get out of that, that debt. I was fortunate enough my father paid for my culinary school. But you go there and... I love eating out at restaurants and I love food and I always cook for my friends and I made cocktails and I did this. And you go to culinary school and you put on houndstooth checkered pants and you have to wear a cravat and this starchy jacket and this paper hat. And you're learning like old French techniques of making galantines and terrines and nobody eats that stuff anymore. And there's 10 people in the class and two people are on saute and you're just like, it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't define the industry for me. I didn't, I wasn't sold, but it was when I first did my internship at that restaurant in Los Angeles, where Julia Childs would walk in and the celebrities were looking in the kitchen because they want to know who was cooking the food. And it was just really this like, you know, come early, stay late. It was, we, we were the rock stars. And that's when I fell in love with cooking. And it was, you know, making food into art on the plate that tasted great. And it was just, you know, Fridays and Saturdays were just the best days ever because you were just going to get pounded and you loved it. And that's where I fell in love with cooking. Excuse my ignorance, but is culinary school always French cuisine focused or does it vary? No, no, no. They, they try to do it, but they're all, they, most of them, the Le Cordon Blues and stuff like that were based on the, the French technique. Uh, and there is a ton of great technique in that, but there's also like, different classes of, you know, worldly cuisine and, you know, Southeast Asian cuisine, but not to sound harsh, but who teaches at culinary school? People who didn't make it in the industry, you know? <laughs> and so you're not getting the cutting edge, you know, people are exploring forward, they're looking backwards. And that's just not the way, I mean, I understand and appreciate history of cuisine and history of business and history of that, but, you know, you need to be able to look at the past, but strive for the future. Mm. The way I'm imagining it is that the focus is on being very precise. Whereas I think cooking also has such a creative aspect to it, which seems like that's the part that you really enjoy. I, that's probably exactly right. I, I don't have any measuring devices in my life. I don't know how to make Like a recipe is like, I can just brief it. And I'm like, got it. Baking requires precision. Cooking requires feel, you know? Mm -hmm. I hear you. I'm, I'm all about the feel. <laughs> and there was one person who you met, I believe you met him at culinary school, who became very instrumental to the trip that changed you. This is hilarious. So he's not the famous author, but it was Henry Miller. <laughs> I, was, I was an aloof, you know, just, a, just un, no direction. I was there because my father told me I was a horrible actor. He had seen me in a play in Santa Barbara. He's like, why don't you just start cooking? It's what you always do. You're always entertaining. And I was at culinary school and I was like, ugh, you know, like these outfits and the food. And I was like, this sucks. But there was this, this uh, a gentleman my age, we were probably like early 20s. I don't even know if we were 21. And he loved cooking and he taught me we'd run around portland oregon and we'd 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 sit at a bar and have a drink probably under 21 to be honest <laughs> and, uh, and we would steal the menus and we would we'd walk around the dining room and look at everybody else's food because we couldn't afford to order all the food and he instilled the passion and the desire and he educated me about great restaurants and styles and this and he was on like the culinary olympic team for the school and he was like the one of the top you know two cooks in the whole school and he's the one that made me fall in love or helped me understand what cooking was at beyond the school spectrum and so when he said hey let's go make some money after school and then as soon as we get enough money let's go tour europe and really explore and have the best time ever and that is the trip we'll be talking about yeah so how did that come about how did you end up going to europe uh, so I had gone down to Los Angeles, worked in the restaurant there for about a year and a half. And then my uncle had had this photography business of racehorse photography. And there was a track in Minnesota 
And he said, why don't you go out there? I'll teach you how to do it. Process your own film. Shoot the pageantry of the horse races. Wait, horse racing photography? Yes. That's so but interesting. It's, it's a very niche job. Oh, it's, it's incredible. So anyway, he actually had the contract at Churchill Downs. So I've been to maybe eight Kentucky Derbies, and I've watched them on the dirt with a camera in my hand. So I've, I, I love horses. I'm on a ranch here. And my uncle, so when you win a race, what do you want? You want to get your picture made. And that's how they say it too. Get, I need to get my picture made. And that's in the winner's circle. So he would shoot the finish line and shoot the winner's circle. And then you get the picture with the, the caption and the horse and all that. And it was a great job. So I was able to make enough money in one summer that I called up Henry. I was like, let's go. <laughs> and he's like, it's on. So he got some financial assistance from his family and I got some from mine. And our goal was three months. And we flew over there with one-way tickets and Euro Royal passes and the money in our pocket. And just uh, we were just going to go with the flow, go wherever it took us. <laughs> and your first stop was Paris, right? Uh, our, we, we flew into London. We had a beer. We almost got hit by cars going the wrong direction on the street. <laughs> and we hopped the tunnel to Paris. And it started out just probably the way it should have. The very first night we were there, we were in the Montmartre district of Paris, and that's a very edgy place. But, you know, we were hostels, and we were backpacking, and it was going to be just on a budget, on a dime. The longer we could save our money, the longer we could last, the more we could see, the more we could learn, the more we could experience. And the very first night, let's just say I was making improper decisions and maybe trying to buy a little hash, and I got jumped, and I got beat up horribly the first night. I was with an Irish guy. I was with a couple guys from the U.S. and a couple Canadians, but I had the money. And so I got beat up bad. And they, they rescued me. They saved me. And I got the nickname Apple Pie um, because I was the dumb American, right? <laughs> and, and so that kind of defined me for the rest of the trip. I was Apple Pie the rest of the trip, right? Because Henry would tell everybody, because Henry didn't go with me. And we walked back in the hostel. He goes, hey, Brian. The guy, the manager of the hostel sells hash. <laughs> I'm all bloody and beat up and just like, oh, God. So he knew my heart was depressed, and he actually threw me onto uh, the train, and he knew a ballerina in Switzerland from the United States. And Wait, so, who, who knew the ballerina? Henry did. Henry, huh? Henry was quite a womanizer. And um, oh. <laughs> social social man. So we were nursed back to health. I was nursed back to health by about eight beautiful ballerinas in the uh, Switzerland, the York Switzerland uh, ballet company. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, so you went, you were only in Paris for one night or how long? Uh, one night I got beat up and then we got out of town. So well, there's we, nothing like getting beaten up to make you want to get out of there and move on to the next destination. <laughs> yeah. So we, so we wound up in this big, beautiful house where all these beautiful ballerinas lived. And in exchange for us cooking for them, they were just the nicest ladies ever. <laughs> we just had the best time ever. And so we got to explore uh, Switzerland. But what we learned, what was so crazy about this trip was somebody had told us a trick. You get the year rail pass. That's a 10-day pass. You can use it 10 different days. And somebody said, erasable pins. And we were like, what? And they're like, so you learn the lay of the land from all the travelers. You think you're going to go to France to meet the French. No, they don't want to talk to you. You're going to go to Italy to meet the Italians. No, they don't want to talk to you. You're going to meet Australians, Canadians, and people from the U.S. in the hostels, right? And so that's who becomes your lifeline. And you learn the tricks of the trade because the Australians have an age-old tradition of a one-way ticket to Europe. And they try to spend one year there, working odd jobs, doing whatever. And so they have so many tricks of the, that you can survive on from sleeping in train lockers, if you have to, to forging your year rail passes and how to get jobs where you don't need a visa of any sort and where to go. Like stay out of the big cities, go to the small towns, you know, that's where they're going to actually let you do stuff. Um, and we learned so many things. But on that year rail pass, I bet we slept on the train no less than 20 nights. We would literally crisscross the whole country just for a free night to sleep. We would be in Prague and be like, let's go to Barcelona. Like, because we would sneak onto the, we'd get on the train, get checked. We'd have a free place to sleep all night long. And we didn't care where we woke up. 
And we eventually would just crisscross the whole continent so many times. We went back to Paris. We went back to Italy like five times. We went to Zurich to see the ballerinas again. We would be like in Amsterdam. We'd be down here. And we were just flying around meeting friends. And you'd just be like, I'll meet you at this fountain, you know, because there's no cell phones. There's none of that. I'll meet you at this fountain every day. Go there at four o'clock. If I'm not there in three days, I can't make it. And so you just meet people at these random places. And we had so much fun. And our whole thing was based on, we survived by cooking for everyone. We would cook for the whole hostel. The hostel would give us money to cook for all the people and all the people would give us money. And we would go by for like Thanksgiving. We went and got the turkey with the whole head on it and did all these amazing things. And just, we just had so much fun going to the markets and going to the fisheries and going. And that was just our thing. That was our trick of our trade. We had two nice knives and a lot of ambition and a lot of good ideas. And we were able to meet everybody by doing that. Well, that's very rare for a hostel. People in hostels are usually eating like instant noodles and things like that. So they must have been thrilled to meet you guys. Because if we went to a market and we paid cash and then we cooked it, it was actually just as affordable as the noodles because the markets weren't expensive. It was the restaurant. I go spend money on a pizza and a trattoria. That's going to cost me $7. Well, $7, if all five of you give me $7, we'll have a feast, you know, because you're buying all of this stuff and we're, and we're able to cook for so many people by just using so much good stuff. And it was very, very affordable, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. And with that, were you searching for a specific food or a food experience in Europe that you hadn't had yet in America? We would try to cook the food similar to whatever country we were in. <laughs> And we we did. I mean, we explored street food of every country we possibly could, you know, more affordable food. We weren't going to Michelin star restaurants by any means. Uh, so we are really eating the food of the people. And we just survived in the markets, the, the farmer's markets and the, the vegetable stands. And we also did get out of the major cities. And we learned that once you got out of Florence or Rome, people actually would sit down with you and they would pour you wine, and they wanted to talk to you. Whereas if you're in Venice, they're like, they don't like you. They don't even want you there because there's so many more tourists coming. You eat, the tomatoes suck in the big cities, you know, because they don't care what they feed you. But any, anything outside those cities, they love you. you. They will sit down and cook for you in these, in these small little towns where we were like hitchhiking and walking and just getting off the beaten path. Every once in a while, we'd find somebody that rented a car and we'd hop in with them. But the small towns is where you get the authentic reality, you know, of Umbria and Tuscany and all the small places in, in Spain. Those, that's where we loved it the most. It was winter when we were there. So we certainly stayed. We were, Once it started getting really cold, we were definitely more going southern Italy and southern Spain and Portugal trying to stay warm and that led us into actually Morocco. Morocco is amazing but very culturally different to the U.S. What struck you about Morocco? So we had we were traveling around with a couple Australian girls and a couple Canadian girls because they kind of clung to us because they we were kind of like their brothers and they wanted to go to Morocco. And they knew that as an Islamic country, it was gonna be a little bit different and be good to travel with some men. And so we took the ferry from Gibraltar, Morocco, Gibraltar. We were exhausted from traveling so much. And we realized that Portugal is really just the European party place for the month of August. <laughs> but you can get a beautiful condo for pennies for cheap and there was we stayed at this one resort where we we're like the only people in the resort <laughs> and because it was completely built for just the summertime tourism and they gave us rooms for nothing so we just sit there and we'd go buy like squid and fish from the fishermen and we we're hanging out with these girls we just had so much fun we were drinking the absence we were just really into the absence we we're having so much fun stargazing really enjoying our time there and uh obviously a lot of you know port wines and getting to know it but then we kind of geared ourselves up and this was about, this is about two and a half months into it. And we're professional travelers now. We are seasoned veterans. We're giving the rookies, you know, new kids, new kids coming in. All right, this is the lay of the land, right? You don't need this, throw that away. You won't need that there. Here, you need this. <laughs> you need a little radio station so you can get music, you know, 
Like our backpacks got lighter because <laughs> we just got really efficient on how to do laundry. You need three shirts, you need two pair of pants, you need lots of socks. And our hair was getting long and we had headbands on and we were really living it. And uh, so when we ventured into Morocco, we took the ferry there. It's the port city is the scariest city I've ever been in, right? You get off that ferry and you're the concentration of people and the Medinas and their city is shit just like, it's on top of each other. And these little 10 year old kids are just throwing every language they can, they, little 10 year old kids can speak like eight languages and they're gonna get you as soon as you blink, they got you. And when they get your language and they know where you are, you're going to have some tea, you're looking at carpets, you're getting, they'll take you into the cities, these ancient old cities, and they'll get you lost. And then they'll make you pay to get them out. You know, and I'm like, these guys have got 11 old kids. <laughs> and so we got out of there as fast as we possibly could because it was just, it's its the border town. It's really, it's like my Tijuana down in Southern California, right? You got to get out of there and enjoy the country quickly. So we got out of there and we went to Fez. And this is when we really were able to learn so much more about food. Like we had never had anything like this. I mean, the, the, the flavors were so bold and the clay pots and the couscous and the goat and the what, I mean, the, the pigeons we were eating, like it was insane and we could afford it, you know? Like at that time, our money was really, really good there and good thing because we were almost broke. But we went to um, their spiritual capital, capital, which is Fez, very religious. The girls were having a hard time adjusting because they got spat at and there was some stuff going on and, you know, we've got them their little headdresses and it's a very liberal Islamic country too. I mean, it's, but that was, this was a long time ago, you know, this is 30 something years ago. So we just had so much fun. We went to Marrakesh, which is just vibrant and bright and the food and the cities and the entertainment and uh, is spectacular and then our favorite part was way down on the end it's called like Esso Square and they're telling us stories about uh where Jimi Hendrix used to live down there and then it was just beaches and then we got into all the spices and that's kind of the small town of Italy we we're getting invited to people's houses because not not many tourists made it down that far, and we we're we we're found some old crappy surfboards, and it was hot, and we looked like billy goats. We were eating billy goats, and it was just it was spectacular. We were really taken in there. We spent about a week in that town alone, and then it was time to start kind of heading back. And by the time we left Morocco, we had goatskin jackets that had been tanned in. Uh, donkey urine. <laughs> we they, had, they have a scent to them. The, the leather from that. It really it's all does. Donkey urine. It's all, <laughs> the whole city is a lot of donkeys with troughs that go into the city, and it's it's donkey. When you, urine. When you walk past the tannery, it's like oh, oh. <laughs> there's a scent. There's a fragrance. Um, I can't wait to go back now that I can afford to live a much better lifestyle. But this, the appreciation of living as a peasant in all these different countries and really getting to know it. And, you know, we had an epic uh, New Year's in Barcelona. Little did I know in Barcelona, what they do on New Year's is they break bottles all over the street. It's like broken glass as far as you can see. That's and mad. Why would they do that? <laughs> I no idea. I was like, this is insanity. And then we started working our way back up and we we finished in Paris. And I remember going back to the original hostel, telling them the story, the front door guy totally remembered us. They were so excited to see this transformation of what we had come to being these like slightly yuppie douchebag kids from, you know, Oregon, California. And uh, coming back as these seasoned travel veterans, talking, telling stories to all the newbies going, all right, you got to go here. This is the one you got to do here. You got to go to this restaurant. You got to do this. Ask for Najib. Ask for this person. Tell them we sent you here. We're going to write you some letters. And uh, it's just, it was absolutely fascinating and so much fun. We got in that plane. And I remember waking up to the uh, stewardess on the plane spraying us with like, <laughs> like deodorizer, like these pigs. No. Disgusting. <laughs> My my dad, who smoked cigarettes, we got into his car at the airport, and he's like, I have to roll the windows down. I'm like, Dad, you didn't roll the windows down when you smoked cigarettes for years when I was a child. He goes, you guys, I am taking you home right now, and you're throwing everything you own away, and you're going to bathe yourself. This is <laughs> really appalling. And I was like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> we cleaned up for you. <laughs> well, the good shots, the clean shots. And so, and why that's just, it, it just defined me. We, we, I think we went to 13 countries in that three months. Some of them we stayed in too long, some we didn't stay in long enough, but we, it was by no means a fancy travel. We were, we were peasants and we were appreciative and we broke bread with the locals and we ate, uh, you know, tomatoes off the trees and we drank the, the local city's wine. You know, we, we got to know every culture and, you know, when you go stay in a big fancy hotel, and you take a tour, are you really understanding the people? Or if you go out and you're hanging out at the local watering holes and the local places they're drinking and you're, you know, trying to speak their language and they're laughing at you, they're actually going to let you in, right? And I think in a lot of these beautiful places, they're like, you know, stupid Americans. And we are, we're, you know, we move too fast. We takes us, it took us two and a half months to be able to chill out on the beach and just talk and relax. And we all run so hot and so fast over here that we really miss a lot. And mm. so to be able to shift down and slow down life and really appreciate the nuances is what really that trip did for me. You know, when you, when you have something great to eat, you always want to have, you want to try, you're like, oh, I got to have that again. I want to get there again. And so when you look back at that and you go, oh my God, that was, the best, you know, mozzarella I've ever had. That was the best prosciutto or speck or hamon or whatever it was. You're like going, gosh, then you eat our stuff that's processed here. And you're like, this, this stuff sucks, you know? Or just even like a simple pizza. There's like, why is this better than anything we have? You know, ours is always too much of this and too much of that. And a lot of it has to do with the company you're keeping, you know, who's sitting there. One of the most beautiful things I ever heard was we met this gentleman, Najib. He was from Northern Africa. He was dating a beautiful Italian woman. And they had a house, they had housemates, and one was from Sweden and one was from here. And they're all artists. And they they really started liking Henry and I, and they'd invite us over for dinner all the time. And this was in Firenze. And we were talking one night, and she goes, Why do you guys enjoy traveling together? And I was like, Well, if you travel alone you can't share the story. <laughs> like who, who do you, you have to tell the story for it to be heard. And she goes, I call it an echo. He's your echo. And I was like, that's beautiful, right? You need, you need to share the story to bring it to life because if you just live it by yourself, it just stays right here. But when, and then when you meet new people and then you're telling the story about how you got beat up and that, and everyone's laughing about it. And then they're telling the story. And then all these stories are coming out and coming alive. That's when you really get experienced so much life. Yes. That's so interesting. I was just saying to my friends that the trip that my husband and I just got done with, that one of the best things about going with someone is that they're also kind of like your memory. They're your memory box. Like yeah. you, because obviously memories are unreliable and they shift and move around over time. So having somebody to bounce those off of and say, do you remember when we did this? And then they'll add and they'll bring stuff back to the forefront of your memory that you've forgotten. That's the amazing thing about traveling with someone. It's, it's so good. And I hadn't seen Henry for probably like 15 years and he brought, he brought his son down to San Diego and we did. We just, we got a like old French bottle of wine and we just sat around and just told like laughed and laughed. And his son was looking at us, just nodding his head. <laughs> and, <laughs> I was like, but tomorrow night, we're going to go make new memories, all right? But tonight, we're going to reflect. <laughs> I actually had a friend that I grew up and went to high school with here, and he came by last night. My friend that I'm with right now, she, I said, if Bradley shows up and he starts talking about all the old high school stories, I said he gets to stay for one beer. <laughs> if he wants to talk about today and new life, he can stay for a few beers, right? And Bradley just comes in and starts talking about high school stories, high school stories. And I'm like, going, Bradley, I just love those. And I, I love the reflection on them. But I said, what about new stories? You want to you want to you want to talk about some new ideas, some new things? Like, what have you done since high school? And I, I, I feel very sad for him because he that was the best days of his life, you know, and they can be great days of your life but you got to keep challenging yourself for your next adventure, your next story, your next great experience. And, you know, I, 
at a point in my life right now where the, my restaurants have done very good, uh, my businesses have done very well, that now I get to do what I've wanted to do my whole life. And that is just travel, right? My mom and I are taking our kids to Scotland and Ireland this summer. And it's just like so many things I want to do. And now I finally, I worked so hard, neglected travel for so long because I wanted to set myself up that now I can just take off and do it all. One of the things I love about your story is the fact that, you know, you, you, it speaks to a very specific time in your life when you're in your twenties and you don't mind, as my mom would call it, roughing it. (laughs) So, you know, you stay in the cheaper places. I can remember backpacking all through Southeast Asia when I was like 18 and staying in places on the beach, like in a little hut, really, really basic for like $2 a night. But then you reach a certain stage in life. Maybe it's age. Maybe it's just, you know, you earn more money and your tastes are just where you're just like, I can't ever go back to that. No. Which is like, you know, I'm sure you're at that stage now when you're doing these trips with your family. It's like, okay, it's a very different way that you're traveling. So how do you feel like what's lost in that transition and what is gained? I think now, because I do like to stay in much nicer places with better views and better this, you still need to go check out the neighborhoods walking. You just get out and walk. Um, even, even when I go to New York, I'll walk 50 blocks. I don't care. I want to see every street, every corner. And I really feel I, I, I am a big runner. So every time I travel, I just take off and you just go run out to the countryside and you want to go where the other tourists don't go. That's the most important thing. And for me, for restaurants, I'll go eat at the nice restaurant at the hotel or a restaurant I've heard about, but then I'll ask the chef. Or I'll ask the server, I was like, where do you eat? Where, where are the restaurants you like to eat? And then you go find the locals places. And that's the most important. You can, you can stay over here in your really nice place, but don't lay on the beach and read magazines. You know, I, like, I, I, I have a hard time laying and doing anything. I want to snorkel. I want to surf. I want to fish. I want to do this. And then I want to go, I want to buy fish where you buy fish. I want to go see, and like, we just got back from Costa Rica and, you know, we're staying in a beautiful house, but we're eating at the little funky restaurant down the street and we're hanging out with the locals drinking beer. And that's when you really get to understand the people in the culture. This is why I'm against all inclusive resorts. (laughs) I think it's the worst thing in the world. It's probably the best thing in the world to keep all those people who like them together and stay out of the way and we're not fighting them for the authentic real cool stuff in town like i will not stay at an all-inclusive resort it is the last place i would ever go i don't want you telling me what i'm eating what i'm drinking or anything like that and may, most time the food's average and the drinks are sugary and horrible anyway so yes um, it's really yeah. designed for people who want to start drinking at like 10 in the morning <laughs> get the value out of it i'd like yeah. oh, that's the worst. I don't want uh, like I don't want to just consume for for monetary reasons. I want to yeah. go explore. And so yeah, I think just walking, running, biking, and just getting out into the community is the best way. Now I'm gonna go sleep on a nice comfortable bed tonight. <laughs> but in, in the meantime, and that's what I encourage my kids to do. And anytime I'm out and about, it's always go out and find the locals. So on this trip what kind of flavors or dishes or experiences or what what lessons did you bring back that influenced your career going forward you know that was my first really big exposure to just extra virgin olive oil and just like the nuances like italian food is just nuances it's salt it's citrus it's olive oil it's just the smallest little thing then you go to morocco and it's like everything like oh you want it you got it you know it's spices and spices and bright and this and it's just over the top and and you know full flavor and braised and really great and you go to Prague and it's like mayonnaise <laughs> you know <There's, laughs> and you're like that cold food you know that's really kind of rich and and it's it, yeah, you're like yeah you know I mean there, there's some good food but I was Prague I was like I've never seen so much mayonnaise in my life you know it was just like <laughs> 
pretty much swimming. Um, but then you go eat great, you know, sausages in, in Germany and you drink beer that is super light and you can drink it all day long. And, you know, and you start understanding the different alcohol contents and, you know, how can they drink so much beer? And when I'm here drinking IPA, I'm floored after two, you know? And so really just learning about those things as a chef, as a restaurateur, I explain this quite often is, you know, there's a lot of ego in chefs and we think our food's really, really good. But my business partner, Christopher Puffer and I have designed all of our restaurants to be all senses, the, the sounds, the music, the clinking of the glasses, the people laughing, the lighting has to be just perfect, right? The comfort of my chair, my silverware, this, the food, the cocktails, the service, everything has to bring people together. And it's not all about the food. It's not all about the ambiance. It's not all about the service. It's all about being brought together for you to share stories and tell jokes and celebrate life. It, food is just the opportunity to come together, sit at a table, and have human interaction. So that's what our whole goal is there is don't go over the top about the food. The food's going to be great, but it's here to share story, and that's the most important part. I love that way of thinking about it. Brian, you've obviously had a very illustrious career, and I'm sure lots of people will know you from your TV appearances, including on Top Chef. I know there's a bit of a funny story as to how you landed that gig. Would you have time to share that? Uh, back in the olden days, the first time. Uh, <laughs> the first time I was on Top Chef, I had tried to be on the, um, what was it? The next uh, Food Network star. And I had submitted my application. I'd done all that. And I, I got, they sent me to New York. I, I met Bobby Flay. I was cooking at the Food Network studio as like an audition. And I bombed. I was so nervous. I was just stressed out. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm just not going to be one of these TV chefs, you know, whatever. I'm not made for it. I, I love cooking. I'd already been named like chef of the year in San Diego. I was doing some fun stuff. And there was, um, a, it was the Liver Foundation charity dinner. And there's like 20 chefs, 20 tables, all 10 tops. And you were assigned to a 10 top. But each chef had to bring their own silverware, uh, all the ingredients. And we were cooking out in like the, the lobby. We had to cook for our tin top. We had to serve them. We had to make our own cocktails. We had to decorate the table. Every table was completely different, right? And these people paid whatever amount of money for each table. And then there's more auctions and stuff. And about a week before the event, the chef from that hotel was at my restaurant. He was drinking. He was kind of being a punk. And he goes, Mularky, what are you making for the Liver Foundation dinner? And I was like, I don't know, something good. He goes, we're going to kick your ass. And I was like, oh, is this a competition? <laughs> I didn't know. And so I got fired up. So I went to the local theater company. I came up with this whole like lions, witches, and dragons theme. We had giant, huge branches that were like 10 feet tall as our play, uh, like in the middle of the table. And then all of this stuff like hanging off of them. We had scrolls that we would like go, oh, this course is <laughs> were like this. And I had a giant lion's mask on as a lion's head. And I'd be like, roar. And everybody in this whole room was looking at our table. I had Marie Antoinette and a court gesture uh, as my servers. I had my general manager dressed up in like this like big fancy outfit he announced every dish in this big big voice and that chef walked over he goes what's going on here brian and he goes i heard you have fire breathers i was like i don't have fire breathers he goes if you light anything on my ballroom on fire i will throw you out and i said i thought you said you're going to kick my ass <laughs> and he goes malarkey don't and so the restaurant I was working for at the time was called the Ocean Air. Ocean Air is famous for their giant baked Alaska, right? Well, I'd gone and got a giant street cone at Home Depot, and I filled it with ice cream. I put meringue on it. It was about a three-foot-tall baked Alaska. And at the, in order to turns in the meal for dessert, I'm like, let's do it. I had these two girls had been dancing around with big, beautiful scarves and everything, but they had these big fire wick fingers, right? I take this 151, I light this whole thing. These girls put their hands into it. I had people with water hidden in the corners and we just went, shoo, and there was fire everywhere. The baked Alaska was burning, the girls are burning. And it was like out of a comedy, 
all of a sudden security cars starts coming in through the, the doors into the ballroom. And all of a sudden I'm like, ah, ah. And that chef is like, malarkey, I told you don't light anything on fire. And everyone in the room is just clapping and like going crazy. Every table, there's like, yeah. They grab me. They take me down to the loading dock, just like in a movie, the garbage room, and they throw me out the door. And they said, you'll never be allowed back here again. And uh, I called all my cooks and my people. I was like, wrap it up, clean it up, meet me at the bar. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And uh, I'm still 86 from the hotel. But a couple of days later, I get a call. And it, there was even an article in the newspaper going, Chef Malarkey lights the ball on fire, liver foundation over the top meal. And uh, I get a call. They go, are you the guy that lit the ballroom on fire? I was like, maybe. And they go, we're a top chef. You want to be on top chef? <laughs> and yes. so the application, they're just like, we need characters like you. So. Oh my God. It all paid off. I love that. <laughs> Such a good story. And you're also on a show called The Taste alongside Anthony Bourdain. He is obviously so beloved. I'm so curious to know what he was like. He was one of the, obviously, one of the most interesting people I'd ever met in my life. I got to spend uh, six weeks with him shooting the show. I was with Nigella Lawson, uh, Ludo, Ludo Lefebvre. And what's so funny is I, I just went into this interview with ABC and I was just over the top. And I got the job. And I was like, how, I don't know how I got this job. I'm, I'm side, I'm beside these three legends. I have, I have the French chef, the intense, scream, loud, proud Frenchman, right? I have like the second queen of England, Nigella Lawson is this worldly figure. I have Bourdain, the East Coast, edgy New Yorker. And guess what I was cast as? Apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> Forever I, apple pie. Forever apple pie. I'm just a, the, the dumb West Coast, like, eh, I'm too loud, too proud. and. Uh, I had so much fun. It was before, uh, it was right when he had started shooting his CNN stuff. And I would go into our trailer. We had all of our trailers right there together. And he would have Ludo and I in, and we would drink tequila. And he would show us all of this raw footage from all of the stuff that you now see on CNN. And he had a daughter that was about the same age as my daughter at the time, about five. And all I want to do was talk about our kids. And I'm like, no. I want kitchen confidential conversation. I want the edgy. And he was just like, you know, nobody ever really looked at him as this amazing father, but he just wanted to talk about kids and what they're going through and this and that. And I was like, this is not fun. This is not what I want. Did but, you guys uh, trade travel stories? You can't trade travel stories with Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> <laughs> I told him that I told him the apple pie story. He, he, he found that one very interesting. And, he said, you probably deserved it. <laughs> I was like, yes, I did. <laughs> but uh, my best story for Bourdain was we, he, he loves whiskey. He loves Pappy Van Winkle whiskey, right? And we were talking, just sitting at the judge's table one day about whiskey, and he loved tequila. And he said, oh, I would die from that, some of that like 20, 21 or 25-year-old Pappy Van Winkle because you just can't get that stuff. And I said, I can get it because I have all these restaurants. And he goes, you can't get it, Malarkey. He goes, I can't get it. If I can't get it, you can't get it. And I was like, I can get it. And he's like, oh, f off. And I was like, oh, okay. And then uh, I had called my, my, my wine purchaser, my food and beverage directors. And I was like going, guys, I need to get this Pappy Van Winkle. And you tell the sales rep that it's for Anthony Bourdain, all right? Like you make this happen. We were on the, the press tour and it was like 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning on a parking lot at some studio and there's food trucks there and there's like 40 people from the press and we're all four sitting up there answering questions about the show right they're doing all the all the press for the show and i reach underneath the table and we had been done shooting we had i hadn't seen anybody for about a month i reach underneath the table and i pull up the pappy van winkle and i said it right there and bourdain looks at it doesn't say a word gets up walks to the craft table grabs four red Solo cups, <laughs> puts them down, opens the bottle, pours it. We drank that whole bottle of Happy Van Winkle before 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Legends. That's an Anthony Bourdain story right there. <laughs> didn't say thank you, didn't say shit, just kept pouring. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. Every chef I've interviewed 
is such a big character. What is it about this profession that makes people I don't know, like into showmen? We're misfits. We're misfits. We're we're uh, we're the kings of the misfits. Our our line cooks, our dishwashers, our prep cooks, our bartenders, our staff. We're all misfits. We're the ones that didn't want to do normal society. We don't like doing normal work. We like doing this. We like intense situations. We like being over the top. We have a lot of creativity. We it's it's uh yeah, we're the I'm the leader of the misfits. We're all the the and we're as as it works, we are chefs are not just creators. We have to, you know, educate, inspire beat down i mean control and and we're like you know we're we're parental figures to so many people because a lot of people coming into my industry have failed or not been inspired in other industries and they're they haven't found their place in life and if they fall in love with this the passion's so deep that they'll work extra hard and they will i mean it's knives and fire we're cave people i mean we're we're knives and fire and elements and hot oil and sweaty and drinking and you know and bourdain was the king of all of them you know he's the one that said it's cool to be the pirates you know rather than a disgraceful job wow we're the we're the ones that people are looking at the kitchen going those people are badass. And I think that's, I mean, that's what it is. That's so true. And obviously the pandemic has been a tough time for people in the restaurant industry. How have you pivoted and survived during the last couple of years? It, it has been extremely tough. The first, the first six months, eight months, year was, uh, you know, I, I would get very sad thinking maybe my industry was over. But now we realize you can shop online for your clothes you can shop online for your groceries but you know what where are you going to wear those clothes when are you going to get dressed up the last thing people need is exactly what i told you and that's that human interaction and they need to come together in a public place and share stories over good food with good service and really share life's experiences and we're we're gonna we're gonna be better and stronger than ever in the future because the malls are dying, everything's fading away, but the restaurants are gonna be a place because people love to hang out. And right now, I, I say it and it's been said, but it's the Roaring Twenties Part Two are coming, right? And it hasn't even happened yet because of this whole second, third, fourth wave that we have right now. But my restaurants are busier than they've ever been right now. And people are spending more. They want more adventurous food. They're loving it. And it's just over the top. And the excitement level in the restaurants, it's not just like take for granted anymore. You know what? Yelp reviews are a tragedy now. Like, are you really going to give them a Yelp review? Like, you should be thankful that they're open and they survived this horrible thing. Do you know how horrible it was for us to open? And It's hard enough to open a restaurant once. When you have to reopen a restaurant four times in two years, it's devastating, you know? So I think we're going to be stronger than ever. Uh, there's less of us, and we've lost half of our workforce because the ones that were just doing it as a part-time job, they decided, I better grow up and go find a real job. Uh, but the rest of us misfits are still down here, bottom-dwelling, making sure that you have a great place for a great cocktail and a great dinner and some great stories and laughter. Oh, that's so true, though. It really is an experience that we all miss. And I specifically miss going to like a dark New York restaurant or bar and sitting at the bar to dine and have cocktails and chatting with the bartender and chatting with whoever I'm with. And oh, I just Coming love back. I miss it Coming so back. much. Yeah. I also knew that you launched a trio of oils. Tell us about Chef's Life and why cooks need to kind of broaden their horizons beyond just olive oil. Well, as, as it was going um, and realizing the restaurants were kind of a scary future, I started thinking like, what could be my pivot? And I, we, we had an employee relief fund when, we, when it first happened. And a lot of the ways we were making money was selling cooking classes, right? Uh, I would do live Zoom cooking classes for like $25 or whatever. And I got to go into people's houses. And eventually we turned it into a company called Chef in a Box, where we would ship groceries to you know 300 people and they'd all tune in. And it became a big corporate thing, but I'd never 
as a chef, you don't get invited to people's houses for dinner too often, all right? People are a little intimidated, a little bit scared. And so this was my opportunity to go to people's houses. And I realized how little the home chef knows about anything. They're just like, it's crazy. And so, you know, what salt do you use? What pans do you use? How hot's your oven? What oil do you use? And oil was just blaringly misused. I would say 90% of the people were using extra virgin olive oil to cook. And I'm like, you can't do that. It, it actually is bad to do. And I would describe it, extra virgin olive oil is a big buttery Chardonnay, all right? It coats everything. It's fatty. It's heavy. You know, it's great to drizzle on at the end to highlight something, to accentuate something, right? It's like an extra ingredient. But I said, for cooking, you need neutral oils that can handle the high heat. So I would, I would go to the grocery stores, look at the oil section. And I'm going, this is an old, staunchy section. It's not fun. It's not exciting. And I don't understand half of the terminology these people have on these bottles, right? And it's all extra virgin olive oil, a couple cool little avocados and a couple little grape seeds, and then commodity canolas, you know? And I was like going, there's something missing right here. And I, I reached out to my friends, uh, Bex Brand. They do incredible uh, branding material. And they told me how much it was to create a brand. And I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> like, that's a lot of money. And after another month or two of the pandemic, I told my business partner, I said, we can't not do this. We have to invest in this, right? And I said, the bottle and the brand is the most important thing here, right? I'm going to make a tasteless cooking oil tasteless, but I have to prove to people that it is, you know, good for the body, good for cooking, good for caramelization, gets you better flavor, better foods. And in order to tell a story, I need to have a cooking oil and then I need to have a blending oil, right? A blending as in restaurants, we put some extra virgin olive oil in vinaigrettes to make them more full and robust, but not overly powerful. And it's too expensive to use extra virgin olive oil for everything. But I also want to taste my my, my mustards, my herbs, my, my spices that I put in my marinades, my vinaigrettes, my chimichurris. So we created the three lineup and Bex took it to a whole new level. I wanted to use all the best oils for the cooking, avocado, grapeseed, sunflower, second pressed olive. And then I want to use extra virgin olive oil, avocado, grapeseed. And then in order to tell the story, we had to have extra virgin olive oil. I wanted matte white bottles, right? I see such great bottles in the booze section um, that people are doing great bottling there, but there's nothing cool in our section. So we got matte white bottles, black letters, and then on each bottle, it says, use this oil for cooking. <laughs> use this oil for blending. Use this oil for finishing. And we pitched it to Kroger and they got it. They were like, wow. Uh, and they picked us up in 1,700 grocery stores nationwide. We started the company a year ago. We've been in market for about four months now. We're breaking records every single week, week over week. And we're going to 5,000 more grocery stores this next year. We have the sprays, the cooking spray and the butter flavored cooking spray coming out uh, first quarter of this year. Um, and the sky's the limit. And we have a charitable give back program uh, to Golden Rule Charity that helps people in the hospitality industry who have been beaten up. Uh, it was there around before COVID, but it helps out through grants to help people in our industry. So it's a give back program too. So we're really proud. I just feel like I got an education. <laughs> so that's good to know. Um, I just bought avocado oil for the first time. So unfortunately, I was one of those people using like extra virgin olive oil. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's avocado oil is i had somebody when we first started the process somebody goes this cooking oil is tasteless <laughs> like wrote a review about it and i was like that's the point of it yeah. <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> we want your carrot to taste like a carrot <laughs> we want your chicken to taste like chicken all right it's fun our, our our instagram content's great our tiktok is over the top hilarious uh we have so much fun uh getting the word out there because so many people don't understand it and you know and and it's not like a Brian Malarkey product it's a chef's product and it's like the secrets of the chefs given to the home consumer and it seems to be resonating very very well yeah I mean it feels like that goes full circle back to your trip your life-changing trip because it's all about the subtleties right cooking is all about that 
Yes, it is. Brian, you've been so amazing. Thank you. You can certainly tell a good story. and <laughs> You have many. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Well, Brian Malarkey on Instagram, Brian Malarkey uh, on my webpage, cheflife.co on Instagram. We're really putting together a lot of basic recipes. I find that if I show somebody how to cut a green onion, <laughs> they're fascinated by it. And people want to just know the smallest subtleties of how to do the most easy things. And I think too often we market and we sell too above people's um, understanding levels. And so Chef's Life really has a great way of making it very easy and approachable to get. So chefslife.com. Also, we have great content on our webpage. So a lot of fun. And we just shot a bunch of new shows that'll be coming out in the Food Network here soon. So. Before you go, I'd love to do a couple of quick fire questions with you. Sure. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? love <laughs> i mean i think just to take it to the most basic things you know love appreciation family yeah i think i think that's just it love if you could teleport anywhere just for the day where would you go and what would you do i am in love with tulum and the food is amazing there the water is amazing there the air is amazing there and it's kind of a pain in the ass to get to <laughs> so if i could snap and be in tulum right now i would take that What's the one thing you never travel without? Um, I never travel without, obviously, financial availability. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I can travel with a backpack. So all I need is my phone and my wallet, and I can go anywhere, anytime. If you could only eat one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is crazy, but right now, it's just Southeast Asian cuisine. It's all I want is spice flavor, herbs, uh, heat. Um, our restaurant, Anime, we have an incredible chef down there. She's Filipino, but we play with Japanese, Southeast Asian, and just the flavors are so big and so bold. And the fermented uh, chili sauces, and there's just so much going on. My palate gets a little bit bored with just some of our kind of Americana stuff. So flavor, flavor, heat, acid. Favorite destination for a foodie vacation? You know, this is crazy. Uh, it used to be Portland, Oregon, right? My own backyard. Like it, it wasn't that when I was young and I was living there, but I travel around the country quite often from Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago. When we develop new restaurant concepts, we just go eat about, you know, and we, it's, it's like three or four dinners a night. It's, it's fantastic. And uh, from Nashville's and Austin, Texas. Uh, but before COVID, the best food city in the country was Portland, Oregon, because it's a little bit blue collar and all the restaurants are very small and you have to work very, very hard to get people's attention. And I mean, from the food trucks to the brick and mortars to the higher end restaurants, it's like every block, you know, and the wine and charcuterie programs and the farming and the, it's just incredible regent. So that was my favorite. They've had a hard time recovering from COVID. And a lot of political unrest up there. But uh, I hope to get Portland back on the map. Mm, I'd love to go visit one day. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Where is next on my bucket list? Like I said, we're going to Scotland and Ireland. And we've always heard about how horrible the food is in Ireland. But I've heard that that's not true anymore. That they really stepped up their game. So I, I'm excited to, you know, as I'm really kind of a mutt from a long time here in the country. But our last name is Irish and really to take my kids there and let them really kind of see old world. I mean, here, something old is like 80 to 100 years old, you know, maybe 200, 300 years old in New York, you know, but how amazing to see things that are 500, 1000 years old and really appreciate, you know, they haven't seen that. So I'm really excited to see them, to show them some of the older world stuff. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time on that trip. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing. Thank you very, very much. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co. 
or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.